Ephesians 5, verse 25. There's will be a first aid kit available afterwards. There will be some ice packs in the kitchen, and we do have some EMS staff in the building. <laughs> As the famous doctor once said, this might hurt a bit. The whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace, and now we're on the walking part. We've spent three chapters looking at the riches of the grace of God that He's given to us, and now Paul has been explaining what it means to behave in a way that's worthy of who we are in Christ. And if we're going to behave worthy of who we are in Christ, it requires us to be living the Spirit-filled life in our marriage in our family and in our work environment. That's kind of the trajectory we're headed on right now. We're in marriage, and then in chapter 6, we're going to start with family, and then we're going to get to the work environment, and then that will kind of close out Paul's section on worthy Christian living. But we're in this marriage part now, and Paul began addressing spirit-filled marriage by talking to the wives. He said, wives, submit your own husbands unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, or even though that's the case, that your husband's not your Savior, as the church is subject unto Christ, you still need to be submitted to your husband. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Paul addressed how wives need to accept the role of respecting their husbands, and now he turns his attention to the husbands as he addresses the wife's chief need, to be loved like Jesus loves the church. And so he says here in verse 25, husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We start here right at the beginning with a simple, clear command. Husbands, love your wives. Like if you want to just break down, like what is my main goal, command from God as a husband? Love your wife. Now, of course, we need to explain what love is, the word here, love, is that word agape, God's kind of love. It refers to an unconditional devotion. Now, why do we define it as an unconditional devotion? Well, because we have other words that are used for love in the Bible that describe something else. For example, we have the word phileo, which is another word used for love in the Bible. Phileo describes a love that rises out of your affection for someone. In other words, affection is a feeling of fondness for someone or, or you like them. It describes family love, our kids, our cousins, our our aunts, our uncles, things like that, parents. These are the relationships where there's family love there. We generally have a natural inclination to love those who are part of our family. It describes the love of friendship. This love is a love that flows out of our heart. Maybe you've met someone in the course of your life and you just hit it off and it's easy. It's like, man, I just love hanging out with this person. That's what this word describes. There's just a natural inclination, a feeling of fondness, and it's a love that arises out of that. Agape is different. Agape describes a love of decision and commitment. It does not rise out of natural inclination, but rather it rises out of an act of the will. It's a decision that's made. It's a commitment that's made. It arises out of an act of the will that decides to be unselfish and to seek the best good of its object. It remains steadfast when emotions ebb and flow, and it remains unaffected by changing circumstances. That's why we define it as unconditional devotion. 
absolute commitment that nothing can change. A husband's chief job is to be unconditionally devoted to his wife, to approach the relationship in a completely unselfish way, committed to seeking his wife's best good regardless of current emotions or circumstances. Now, if we stop there, most of us probably all need to get alone with Jesus and do some work. Because when we just look at that expectation that the Lord gives here, the command that He gives here to husbands, there's plenty right there. And yet, when we ask the question, okay, so what does unconditional devotion look like? Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us two very vivid, clear, and practical pictures of what a love like this looks like. He says, even as, or to the degree that, or in comparison to. So to this degree, or comparatively speaking like this. Number one, the first picture, as Christ also loved the church, and number two, as Christ gave Himself for the church. So first off, husbands, we need to love our wives to the degree that, and in comparison to, how Jesus loved the church. And then secondly, husbands, we need to love our wives to the degree that, and in comparison to the fact that Jesus gave His life, literally died for the church on the cross. So when we ask the question of, okay, I get the idea that, you know, I need to be unconditionally devoted to my wife. I need to seek her good unselfishly, regardless of how I feel. Okay, what does that practically look like, though? Look at Jesus. So let's look at these two pictures then. Number one, the first picture, how did Jesus love the church? Well, the Scriptures have lots of things to say about Christ's love, but I found four principles here. I found four things that I saw that the Bible tied Jesus' love for us to and then tied His love to us and then gave us an explanation of what that means. And so I'd like to just take a look at that this morning. The first one is found in our Scripture reading in John 13, verse 1. In John 13, verse 1, it tells us that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father. It says, having loved His own that were in the world. These are His sheep. These are going to be members of the church. It says, having loved them, it explains how He did that at the very end. It says, He loved them unto the end. Now, some of your Bible translations might say, through it all. But even that doesn't capture the totality of this word. The idea that's being conveyed is he loved them perfectly and completely. So, husbands, if you're going to be obedient to God's command to love your wives as Christ loved the church, you need to love them perfectly and completely. Perfectly and completely. No, no problem, right? How on earth do I do that? It's interesting, we when we studied earlier in, in Ephesians, in Ephesians 3.19, Paul prayed a prayer for us. He said, Lord, my prayer is that you would help them to be able to wield the love of Christ, which can't be comprehended. Interesting prayer, isn't it? In other words, Ephesians 3.19 comes out and says, we will never fully comprehend the vast love of Christ this side of heaven. So how does a husband love his wife to the degree John 13, 1 describes if he can't ever fully understand that love? Well, it's bound up in Paul's prayer. Paul prayed that we would understand it enough to be able to wield it. 
which means the idea of loving our wives like Christ loved the church perfectly and completely means I embrace the concept that I need to always be growing in learning how to love my wife. If you're a husband, I think this shows us that you will never arrive at this perfection, this side of heaven, which means until you breathe your last, there will always be ways that you need to learn your lo- love your wife better. There will always be ways that you need to learn to love your wife better. Now, why is that such an important thing to address? Because, men, we tend to think we've done enough. Or we tend to think that some of the expectations that our wives have upon us are unfair. We will be working on things, and then it seems like we're working on things, and now they're talking about something else. Right? And it can be very easy to become bitter. If you look at the parallel passage in Colossians, Colossians and Ephesians are sister letters. Paul's writing to a different group, so he includes some different things, but they have a very same flow. And when you get to this section where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then it adds this, and do not be bitter at them. Do not be bitter at them. I know many Christian husbands who have grown very bitter at their wives. Don't I do enough? Doesn't she see how much I lay down my life for her already? Why is it never good enough? The answer to that is because you still have things to learn. And you always will. And so instead of letting those things discourage you, you need to realize that there will always remain areas you need to grow in loving your wife. If you do not embrace that, you will never be moving toward this ideal of loving your wife perfectly and completely. Will you ever reach it this side of heaven? No, of course not. But you will stop growing in that direction, which means you won't be loving your wife like Christ loved the church. I know so many men, and, and I'm, I realize it's, some of it's a part of our culture, but I know so many men who are husbands who are absolute wimps when it concerns their wife. You say, why are you using strong language like that? Because I need to. We'll be talking, we'll be sitting down and be like, yeah, I can't bring that up with my wife. I'm like, what? Does she like, does she threaten to eat you? <laughs> like, like, what are you afraid of? What, what, what are you worried about? What, what, is, what is the big concern here? Is she threatened to kill you? What is stopping you from engaging with your wife in a difficult topic? It's selfishness. It's always selfishness. I don't want to have a two-hour discussion. The game's going to be on in an hour. I want it to be a five-minute discussion or not a discussion. I don't like upsetting her. It changes how the rest of the night goes. I had other ideas for how the evening would go. Right? I'm not speaking for someone who's never done this, all right? Me and my wife, Bev, we have had DMZs in our marriage, demilitarized zones. We generally stay away from the area, and if we ever go into the area, nobody brings a weapon, right? And maybe you don't have that, but my guess is you probably do. We don't talk about that. And nobody certainly brandishes any weapons in that area. We've had that area in our marriage. I would sit down to balance the checkbook. I half of you probably don't even know what that means anymore. But <laughs> I would sit down to balance the checkbook. 
Bev would go in the bedroom, and I would make sure I didn't break out any weapons. Because if I pulled a knife, she pulled a gun. And then I got a tank. And then she pulled out a nuke. So you have these DMZs. You say, well, we just don't talk about it. What do you mean you don't talk about it? I can understand that from your bride, but you're not her. She's not called to lay down her life for you. You're called to lay down your life for her, which means you engage, even if it's going to be a three-hour conversation, even if she's going to be mad at you. Because when you don't engage, what you are telling her is you're not worth the time. You're not worth me having my day become more complicated. You're not worth the energy. And that is not love. I realize, I realize, men, sometimes your wife is looking for you to meet needs that only Jesus can meet for her. You are not her Savior, and that's not what I'm telling you to do. We, we already covered that in earlier verses in Ephesians 5. And we will address how to handle a situation like that later in the study. But the point remains the same. You have to engage. You can't be so sensitive, like, well, she just thinks I'm a failure. Okay, so? You are, in some ways, right? Like, if you can't be honest with yourself and look in the mirror and go, you know what, I can do better at that. I mean, what's the problem? Which isn't like how I do this. So? You have to embrace the idea that you have room to grow, men. You should always be looking for opportunities to grow. You and I should not be looking for the day when we walk into the door and our wife raises their hands into the air and the sunbeams fall down from the sky and shine on her face while she confesses that you have become the most amazing man to ever grace the world. And man, I know why you want that to happen. It's so you can go, I know. We long for that respect and that value. We, we talked about that. But if you are looking for some sense of I'm worth anything from your wife, then there will be times when that's not happening. And ultimately, that comes from the Lord. You have value because Christ died for you. I mean, that, that's huge. When Christ looked at his own life and he said, I value you higher than that. I will lay my life down because I love you. I value you. We don't have intrinsic worth in the sense that we've earned that, but we have worth because Christ has placed worth upon us. He considers us, doesn't make any sense to me why, but He considers us to be of such high value that He would lay His life down for us. That has to be enough, men. And of course, it's wonderful. When our wives look at us and said, hey, you did great. I respect you. I'm, I'm proud of you. Like, I, I'm with you. I got your back. I mean, all those, we love hearing those things. But when our wives are saying, you can do better, we, we, we can't, like, live in this dream world of, well, I, I am already better. And why are you telling me I can do better? Because you can do better. 
So how do you and I practically apply this point that we're always going to be growing as husbands? Well, if there's, and, and I don't take credit for this, if you ever want to read a really good book on being a husband, it's called The Complete Husband by Lou Prioli. I've read it three times. The first time I read it, I think I threw it against the wall seven times. Second time, I think I only did it a couple times. And the only reason I didn't throw it against anything the third time I read it is because I was on a bus in Peru and there were other people around me. But he said this, if there's any way that you can biblically change something that your wife points out or asks you to change, you should do it. You should do it. Or at the very least, seek the Lord about what you can learn from what she said. Let me give you a marriage tip, guys. If your wife is verbalizing something that needs to change, you're already way too late. I realize that you think your wife brings up every fault you have the moment she sees it. But the reality is, most of the time, and everybody's different, no one, I'm not cookie cutter in women or anything or wives, but most of the time, if she's brought it up to you verbally, she's already been thinking about it for a long time. She's probably even been praying about it, if she's a believer. And it's very likely that she's been trying to drop hints so she didn't have to say it. Okay, the hedges are looking a little overgrown. <laughs> now, ladies, we are not the Lord, and we do not read minds. So you just, you just got to hit us with a brick, all right? All right? <laughs> we, we don't see it, okay? But the tip I'm giving you is if she's verbalizing, you're already way too late. Like, if you hear something, she's like, I need you to take care of this. Or, hey, could we have a conversation about how you handled that situation with our son? Like, if she's verbalizing it, like, you don't have time to just go, oh, I'll take care of that, or I'll think about that, or I'll wait till she tells me three or four other times. No, like, you've already gone past the point where you should have done something. If she's verbalizing, you're already late, which means you need to take action immediately if there's any biblical way you can. Or like I said, at the very least, seek the Lord about what you can learn from what she said. Maybe you feel like the critique is unfair. You think, I don't, I don't even know if the critique is biblical. Well, then go to the Lord. So what can I get from this, God? I have had times when I've, I've been frustrated because maybe some of the things Bev's brought up, I thought, I don't think that's true. I don't think I do that. Or I don't think, I don't think that I'm, I'm as bad about that as she's mentioning or whatever. Or, do I really need to do this? But anytime I go to the Lord... Even if, and these has been very seldom times that the Lord has said, yeah, she's off, or she's overreacting, or I'm doing a work in her heart, Will, just keep loving her through this. The very maybe one or two times that's happened, even then the Lord's been like, yeah, but you can do better here. There's a way that you can handle this better. So, point number one, Jesus loved the church perfectly and completely, which means as men, as husbands, as a man who, if you're a young man, single man, you want to be a husband someday, you need to understand you're never going to arrive. You're always going to be needing to grow. So don't be so sensitive about critique. The second place I found in Scripture where it mentions that how Christ loved the church is actually in Ephesians. We already studied it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul explained be therefore followers of God as dear children, 
And then Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And then he explains what that looked like. And has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Now, we're going to look at the sacrifice part when we get to the end of verse 25 in Ephesians about him giving himself for us. But we start here in this section of where he gave himself as an offering to the Father for us. So, remember how we talked about Ephesians 3.19 earlier where Paul's prayer was that, Lord, help them to be able to wield something they can't fully understand. Paul would never pray a prayer that he knew was out of God's will, at least under inspiration for sure. So, what Ephesians 3.19 means is that even though I can't fully understand God's love this side of heaven, I can understand it enough to be capable of showing it to my wife, even if I'm not perfect like Jesus. And so when we look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, this is the basis upon which Paul can say, hey, Christian, you need to love others like Jesus loved you. Certainly, that truth also applies to husbands. When we look at Christ's life given for an offering, Christ did not just give His life as a sacrifice to His Father for us. He gave it as a free will offering of obedience and surrender. Loving your wife like Jesus loved the church means acting like Jesus when He walked the earth. Well, what did Jesus do when He walked the earth? Well, that means being obedient to the Father. It means drawing near to the Father. It means pleasing the Father with your behavior. And so, when we talk about loving our wives like Christ loved the church, it means loving our wives as an offering to the Father. And so, I ask you this morning, men, is your is it a priority to invest in your relationship with God? Is it a priority to please God with your behavior? Because I guarantee you, if you're not, those two things aren't a priority in your life, you're going to struggle loving your bride. You're going to struggle. You're not going to love her like Jesus. Because doing it as an offering to the Father, it's going to control everything else. If your wife says something nasty to you, and you kind of look up to the Father and say, Lord, everything I do is to be obedient to you and submitted to you and please you and honor you, and then you look back at her and you go, being nasty back is not going to please my Father. Lord, I do this as an offering to you. Early on in my marriage, I would, I would always tell Bev, I would say, why well, I only said this because you did this. Or I only acted this way because you did this first. In other words, my sin is your fault. Man, that was language I had to clean up real quick. My sin is always my fault. And it, those types of words betray a lack of a fear of God. They betray a lack of a depth with God in relationship with Him. A lack of understanding of, of why, why I do anything I do. And so are you investing? Is it a priority to invest in your relationship with your Heavenly Father? Is it a priority to please Him with your behavior? Because when it is, when those things are true, that your relationship with the Father is important, it's a priority, and you, your priority is to please Him, well, then it's going to affect how you act. And you will be loving like He's loving. And how does He love? Well, the Bible tells us. It defines agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love suffers long. Love is patient, Right? That, if, if I say, Lord, how do I handle this situation? He goes, well, I'm patient. I love you by being patient with you. That's what pleases me. All right, then I'm going to be patient with my bride. 
Love is kind. It's the opposite of being harsh or nasty. It's nice. Love does not envy. Love does not brag on itself. Love is not arrogant. Guys, remove the word you always, phrase you always or you never from your vocabulary in conversations with your wife. Get rid of it. Because A, first, it's not true. It's not completely true. Even if she's 80% of the time, it's still not completely true. And it's hurtful. It's arrogant. It does not behave itself rudely. Does not seek her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. In other words, keeps no record of wrongs. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Do those verses accurately reflect how you treat your wife? Are you patient, kind, free of envy, free of boasting and arrogance and rudeness, self-seeking, being easily provoked, records of wrong? Do you bear all things with your wife? Do you believe all things? Bear all things means you, you, you shoulder the weight Believe all things. You can listen to my teaching on 1 Corinthians 13. We went through the book of 1 Corinthians where I explain how that it talks about believing the best about someone instead of assuming the worst. Hopes all things. In other words, believes, trusts that God has an expectation that God is working in someone's life. And then when we don't even see evidence of that, we endure. Endures all things. Love never fails. Do those verses accurately reflect how you treat your wife? And if you don't know how to answer that question, then just ask her. Am I patient with you, honey? Would you describe me as kind to you? Does it seem like I envy you? Am I boasting about myself when I'm around you? Particularly as we're in conflict, talking about how I'm right and you're wrong? Am I arrogant? Do I speak in some of these high and mighty terms like never and always when I converse with you? Do I treat you with rudeness? Do you think I'm self-seeking toward you? Am I easily provoked by you? Do I bring up all the things you've done wrong? Frequently? Do I help shoulder the weight? Do I believe the best about you? Do I convey to you that I believe God's working in your life even when things are challenging? And do I endure even when I don't see any evidence of that? Do you know that I'll never leave you? Those are good questions to ask because if you... Tell her to be honest with you, she will. And she'll be a far better assessment of those things than you will be. 
If the answer to those questions is, well, no, you're not loving me like this, or if you know the answer is no to a lot of the things that Paul talks about here, well, then you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. Repentance is necessary in one or more of these areas. Now, if you look at this list and you, you say, well, hey, I, I know I have, to, I have to work on some of these areas, but the, I've been striving for that, and I'm, my goal is to grow in that. Well, that's, that's great. Point number one was that, well, you always need work on loving your wife like Christ loved the church. It's not a problem to look here and go, I don't do this perfectly. That's, hey, that's life, right? That we're, we're not Jesus. But you must take seriously the need to address these areas that need work. And so, if you recognize, yeah, I got stuff I got to work on, the question is, are you taking those areas seriously? Are you putting effort into addressing those areas so that you can put yourself in a place where you can grow in those areas? Because if the answer is no to that as well, even if you're not failing in a lot of areas, you're still not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. You need to repent. Because when we're loving our brides like Christ loved the church, we'll present our love as an offering to the Father. And I, I don't want my offering to be an, like Cain's offering, right? The Lord's like, hey, do this. And I'm like, well, I'll give you this. And the Lord will be displeased with my offering. I want to be like Jesus. Point number three, not only do we have to recognize that we're still growing because our goal is to love perfectly and completely. We need to, secondly, you know, love our wives as an offering to the Father. But thirdly, we find another section of Scripture where Christ's love is described or kind of elaborated on is in Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35, it asks a question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it, it kind of goes into an explanation of what can't separate us. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So in all these things that we could go through, from ranging from difficult to awful to horrifying, in all those things, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so loving my wife means that I remain committed to her no matter what difficulty, stressful situations, financial struggles, or danger arises in our marriage. It means that I will let no person and no circumstance come between me and my commitment to her. If you're taking notes, it means that we love our wives with full commitment. We love our wives. We have to, Jesus loved the church perfectly and completely. He loved them as an offering to the Father, and He loved the church with full commitment, no matter what. Which now brings us to a wife's chief need. The reason that God says, husbands, love your wives, is because her chief need is to be loved. While a husband's chief need is to be respected and valued by his wife, a wife's chief need is to know that she is the priority, that no one and no thing except the Lord has a higher priority in your life than her. That is her need. In the most difficult times of our lives, even in my worst blunders and failures as a man and a husband, Beverly has told me that she would live in a cardboard box with me as long as she knows I love her. As long as she knows that us is the priority, that she's the priority. 
And so I ask you this morning, men, is your wife your top priority next to the Lord? Or are there other people you'd rather be with or things you'd rather be doing or goals you'd rather be pursuing than deepening your relationship with her or serving her? Because if there are other things that hold a greater priority to you, then you are not loving your wife like Jesus loves the church. You need to repent. I can guarantee you this. Nothing would stop Jesus from going to the cross. He even said that. He said multiple times, he goes, my face is set toward Jerusalem. My father's given me a job to do. I'm going to get my bride. And nothing would deter him from that. No other thing. And there were plenty of opportunities. There were plenty of things that Jesus could have chased. It mentions multiple times as he's on his way to Jerusalem and they tried to pull him aside to make him king. They tried to do this. They tried to do that. There were multiple other opportunities where he could have ran down other roads, but he set his face toward Jerusalem because what he was headed for was the cross to purchase us, to make us his bride. If there are other things that hold a greater priority to you, then you are not loving your wife like Jesus loves the church. You need to repent. Now, it goes without saying that this level of commitment and priority means that you get your eyes, your heart, and your mind off other women. And that's whether that woman is in person or in video format or in writing format. It doesn't matter your heart and your mind and your eyes need to be on your bride. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23, we get a very clear exhortation regarding this level of commitment in regards to where our hearts, our eyes, and our minds are in regard to our wives. In Proverbs 15, sorry, chapter 5, verse 15, The writer says, drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well. Let your fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. In other words, the idea here is that, man, give it your all. Don't hold back. Don't keep the spigot halfway open. Be fully committed to your bride. Be fully committed to your wife. Go all in. Let them be only your own, though. He says, go for it, but keep it with her, not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her be as a loving hind in a pleasant row. I use that kind of language all the time with you, don't I, baby? (laughs) You're like a pleasant deer hopping in the fields. Different times. My favorite is what? The one your teeth are like ivory towers. <laughs> Guess maybe that's because she had some. So, but you know, <laughs> the dental work was not exactly good back then. So, let her breast satisfy you at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. When we address, don't let anything intoxicate you except, and then in contrast to that, be filled with the Spirit. It's not that we're to be intoxicated with the Spirit. In fact, this is the only time, I mentioned that when we went through earlier in Ephesians 5, this is the only time that it tells us to be intoxicated with something. That's what that word ravished means. It means be intoxicated, be absolutely 
under her control in the sense of where your eyes, your mind, your heart are. That she is your world in regards to that. Let that be the controlling influence when you, you're thinking romantically. Be ravished always with her love. For why will you, my son, be ravished, intoxicated, under the control and influence of a strange woman, an immoral woman? Why, why would you embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. He sees it all. He ponders all his goings. And that man that, that gives in to the strange woman becomes intoxicated with her. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be held with the cords of his sins. And listen, men, you know this. If you have ever battled pornography, you know exactly that that's what this verse is explaining, that you are in chains. He shall die without instruction in the greatness of his folly. He shall go astray. He'll go off the path. Don't do that. Be fully committed to your wife, your mind, your heart, your eyes on her. Fourthly, we see another description of Christ's love in Philippians 2, verse 1. This is such a cool one. Paul is asking a rhetorical question in Philippians 2, and the answer is, of course, yes to all the questions. So he says, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ. Well, of course there's consolation, which means encouragement. Of course we have encouragement in Christ. Is there any comfort of love? Well, of course there's a comfort of love in Christ. Any fellowship with the Spirit? Of course there is. If any bowels and mercies? Well, if that, since all these things are true, then serve others. Be humble. But it's cool, what's cool here is he mentions, well, if there's any comfort of love. In other words, it describes Jesus' love for his church as a comforting love. Christ does bring his church a comfort of love. Well, what does that mean? Well, this word comfort, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it means tender admonition with reference to something that's happened. In other words, when he comes to us, somebody pointed out this morning, I know you said this is a heavy message, but God's Spirit is gentle. He's kind. And it's so true, right? Like when the Lord convicts us, He doesn't bang us over the head and hold us down and, you know, rub our nose in the ground and be like, really, you did it again? No, He, he is kind. He is gentle. He, he, is, he tenderly admonishes us. It also means to persuasively influence and encourage someone. Now, the context of the question here that he asks in this verse is an exhortation to put others before ourselves, to have the humble mind of Christ in how we relate to others. And so, this relates to, well, what do you do when someone hurts you, or what do you do when someone wrongs you or fails you? And so, we bring up now the question of, well, what do I do when my wife's not being obedient? Well, you love her like Christ loved the church. You tenderly admonish her. You seek to persuasively influence and encourage her. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, in verses 1 through 6, it addresses the wives, and what do you do? What do you do if your husband's not being obedient to the Lord? Uh, and specifically, it says, if you have a husband who's not being obedient to the Word of God, it's not if he's an unbeliever. If he's a believer who's not doing what God says, well, then here's how you have to handle that. But then in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, it says, likewise. In other words, if you have a wife that's not obeying the Word, well, here's how you handle that. And it tells us, dwell with them according to knowledge, 
giving honor unto the wife. Those are the two commands. It gives some more details there as to why, which we'll get into later in our study in Ephesians, but we stop here for now because it explains what we do. We, if our wife's not obeying the Word, first off, we need to dwell with them according to knowledge. That means with wisdom or with understanding. And then secondly, we need to give honor to her which means to place high value on her. Loving my wife like Jesus loves the church or loved the church means I need to offer tender admonition when she fails. My words should be placing high value on her and have a persuasive influence by encouraging her, not piling on top. When she fails and I walk in... Here, if we're going to love our wives, guys, we cannot treat our marriage like a doctor-patient relationship. You can't walk into the room and go, you're crying, why? Okay, oh, oh, you got an argument with your coworker? How many times have I told you, just don't talk to her about that stuff? You know, if you just don't talk to her, this won't even happen. We're kind of like the doctor. You walk in, you go, and look, okay, the nurse took your numbers, all right, well, your blood sugar's high, so stop eating sugar. See you in three months, that'll be $7,000 right? And if you're a doctor here today and you spend time with your patients, I'm not talking about you. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. But, you know, I have been to my primary care position at times, and I hope he doesn't watch the sermons, but (laughs) I've been to it at times, and I walk in, and it feels like, I'm like, well, I wanted to talk about some things. Like, I'm I'm not sure I agree with you in your assessment, or I'd like to talk about some other things, or I have some concerns, and he just wants to shoo me out because he's got 14 other patients waiting, and things are running late, and I get it. It's busy, but this is my life we're talking about. Well, it's the same thing with your marriage. This is a person. And it's not just any person. It's the most important person in your life. We can't walk in, look at the chart, and declare this is what you need to do. And then be like, I'm a good husband. I'm going to go watch the game. Our wives are not a clogged gutter They're not a business proposal or an annoying employee that you just have to get through it. We need to approach these situations wisely, men, giving our wives honor. We need to treat them as the most valuable thing in the world to us, not a project whose materials can be simply replaced if we mess it up the first time. And so that means loving our wives like Jesus loves the church. It means that we pray before we speak, that we think before we speak. It means ensuring that I'm tender when I speak and that I am encouraging her in her walk with the Lord, even when I'm required to provoke her to obedience. You need to come alongside and be like, hey, listen, I know you're feeling beat up right now, but the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the Lord loves you, and He is working in this situation, and I know you feel like He's not, but you know what? I'm praying for you, and I'm here with you, and I've got your back. Now, can I share something with you? Maybe you shouldn't have that conversation with that person. I know it's hard. I know it's frustrating, but maybe... Maybe that's maybe not the path that God wants you to take. Maybe we should pray about that more, about how you should handle that. 
Maybe I've not prayed enough about it. You know, the Lord hasn't given me any ideas about how to better handle the situation. Maybe we should pray about it more together. There are so many other routes you can take it than, didn't I tell you not to do that? Or, you know, why don't you listen to me when I say something? Now, all four of these principles, the idea that we need to recognize we're always growing, our goal needs to be to growing towards loving our wives perfectly and completely. We need to love our wives like an offering to the Father. We need to love our wives with full commitment. And then fourthly, we need to love our wives with tender leadership. All of those things are in mind when Paul says, guys, you need to love her like Jesus loved his bride when he walked the earth. But we also know that Jesus did not just live for us. The second picture he paints here is also how we love our wives, and it's that he gave his life. He died for us. That phrase, gave himself, when it says that he gave himself for it, the phrase gave himself means to hand over something to someone. Say, hey, you're in charge of this now. It usually conveys the idea of right or authority. The Jews did not arrest Jesus against his will, and the Romans did not crucify Jesus against his will. He gave himself into their hands. Jesus, when he was talking about how he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, he goes on to explain that in John chapter 10, verse 18. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. At any moment during his arrest, his trial, or the execution, Jesus had the power to say, enough, I'm done. And not a single person could have stopped him. But he's the good shepherd, and he laid down his life to the very end for us. Husbands are to love their wives the same way, to hand over our rights and authority to do as we want with our lives and to never take them up again. Now, every Christian is supposed to do this in regards to our relationship with God, right? That's what we sang about surrender, right? All of us are supposed to say, Lord, I surrender my rights. I surrender my life to you. You're in charge. But every husband is also required to lay down his rights as it regards his relationship with his wife. You didn't get married so you could continue living like you're single, but have your personal private prostitute or cook or confidant or whatever else you might look to her for. You said I do to I die. And if you are a single man who wants to be married someday, that is what you're going to do on your wedding day if any minister worth his salt does your wedding. You're going to say, I do, but it means I choose to die. And the word love here in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. It's in the present tense. Continually love your wives, which means this is a decision we need to reaffirm every day. And do you do that? Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever come to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I choose to die, to lay down my rights for my wife, to lay down what I want to serve her? And if you have, are you regularly doing that? Because if you're going to obey this command to love your wife, you have to. Now, you might be thinking, I don't want to do that. Well, that's what you were designed to do. Men were not created and designed by God to satisfy themselves. 
We were designed to know God and to lay down our lives for others. Satisfaction in life, meaning and fulfillment in life, it comes from intimacy with Jesus. But purpose and value in life comes from doing what we were designed to do, which is lay down our lives for others. And certainly that holds true for our wives. Self-gratification of any kind is very temporary. My mother-in-law was watching Father of the Bride last night, and we were all watching in with her. And, and uh, you know, there's a part where the husband, the dad, he just gets so frustrated with all the finances, he just needs to go for a drive. That's fine. You know, you go for a drive, you get out, fresh air, whatever, but you still got to come back. Self-gratification of any kind is very temporary. If you want to keep it going, you got to keep feeding it and then making it grander over time. But in effect, you're just chasing the wind. Don't go chasing the wind when everything you need is right in front of you. And if you're married, your bride is always in front of you. There are nonstop opportunities to find purpose and value as you lay down your rights to serve her. And so I ask you this morning as the team comes up, will you embrace that? Will you embrace what you were designed to do? We're not going to get to verse 28 today. Or will you keep chasing the wind? We'll get to verses 26 and 28 at least next week when we look at what Jesus had in mind as he was loving the church this way and giving himself for us. And and that will help us to understand why we should follow his example of loving our wives. But for this morning, I think the goal is clear of what the challenge is clear, at least from, from Paul and therefore the Lord, is here's the clear picture of what loving your wife as a husband looks like. A very clear picture. Number one, we need to always be looking for ways to improve. Number two, we need to do it as an offering to the Father. Number three, we need to be committed to our wives in a way where there is no doubt in their mind that they are the priority. Number four, we need to lead with tender understanding. Number five, we need to lay down our rights to do as we wish and serve our wives. And so this morning, if the Lord's spoken to you in any way, I encourage you, don't ignore that because this is a huge responsibility. Let's stand. One of the things that's easy to do when we go through this section on marriage, especially when we're going as slow as I'm going through it with you, is we, for, we can forget the context. And the context of this is just a few verses earlier where Paul says, listen, you're light. You are light. You are in Christ. Have no partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, be light. Be who you are. If we don't do marriage right, we're not going to be light. And we know that that's Paul's point because when he gets to the very end of Ephesians 5, he says this, he goes, I know I'm talking about marriage, but really I'm talking about Jesus and the church. The whole thrust of this is, I'm explaining to this, you wives and husbands, because this is how you're going to be light. It's part of how you're going to be light. And if your marriage is a train wreck of selfishness, no one's going to want what you have. You will not shine in such a way that men are turning to the Lord, asking questions, glorifying Him, looking to Christ. They're not going to because they can find that everywhere else. They can find selfishness and heartache and rudeness and all those things everywhere else. But if we show them the love of God, the submission of Christ, 
Well, guess what? We can offer something far better as we shine for him. So, Lord, that's our desire. We want to shine as husbands, wives, our marriages. Lord, we want them to be living testimonies of your love for us, Lord, of of our submission to you. We want our, our marriages and our lives to be just lights that shine so bright. They're like a city on a hill that all can see, that draw men and women to you. We want to be different, Lord. So for every man this morning, and woman, of course, as there are many principles that apply here, Lord, anyone who's crying out to you right now and saying, Lord, I'm committing this to you, or they're asking for forgiveness or confessing sin, whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you would be working and responding to those prayers of the heart. And Lord, as commitments are made this morning, that you would empower them with your spirit, that Jesus, you would live through them because we can't do anything without you. In Jesus' name, amen.